good evening. Welcome to the LSE. I am Anne Applebaum. I think in this context I should introduce myself as a former Philippe Roman professor here. Uh, I taught here for a year, and so did my colleague, Timothy Snyder, who is another former Philippe Roman professor at the LSE. And so here in this context, that's, those are our most important qualifications. Um, Tim, to those of you who have read his many books and many articles, um, you know, probably needs no introduction, but uh, just as a reminder, he's a distinguished professor at Yale University. Uh, he is a great expert on Eastern Europe, on Ukraine. He's been personally involved in writing about um, and speaking in and about Ukraine over the last year. Um, uh, but tonight he is going to um, he's going to talk about a different subject. He's going to speak about his new book on the Holocaust, which I have read and can recommend. Um, I meant to lay out the running order for this evening. He, Tim will speak for about 45 minutes. Uh, we will then have some questions and answers, which will, of course, be polite and friendly and um, welcoming and nice to our guest from, uh, from America. Or at least be in the form of questions. <laughs> I, I'll, settle, I'll settle for that. Yes, we're just questions, and then afterwards we can have, then lectures will be accepted afterwards, let's application. <laughs> Um, I see I'm meant to tell you where the fire assembly point is for the building, and I actually have no idea where the fire assembly point is. So if a fire breaks out, everyone run. Um, we, will, we, will, we will go until about um, 8 o'clock, and there will be a podcast of this event, and hopefully it will be online eventually. So um, I'm also instructed never to say a podcast will definitely be available, as you never know that te te technical issues could, could block it. Um, please turn your mobile phones uh, to silent, but you are welcome to tweet. Um, that's, um, those are house rules. Um, Tim, I'm really delighted to have you here. I have known Tim for a very long time um, and seen him in many contexts in different countries. Um, and I'm really pleased to be introducing you and organizing your question and answer session this evening. So begin. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. So uh, I, I'm speaking to you um, on the, the second evening of Rosh Hashanah which is, I would like to emphasize, my fault and not the fault of any of the organizers. Um, if you are here uh, and Jewish, I hope you're feeling as bad about this as, as I am. Um, in any event, um, Shana Tova. My association with, or the way I organize in my own mind, the, the Jewish holidays has been, I think probably, irrevocably changed by working on the Holocaust because so many of the survivors, when they write about the time of events, when they record later what happened to them, they don't say April, May, June, July, August. Um, they speak of Purim or they speak of Yom Kippur. I, I was thinking in particular as I organized my thoughts for this lecture tonight of um, the days of awe uh, between... Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in, in September 1941. That's the time of the year we find ourselves in now. And it's the time of the year um, in which took place the horrible mass murder at Babi Yar. And I can't help but associate the two things because the, 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 the murder at Babi Yar took place 
two days before Yom Kippur in, in, in 1941. And the reason this is impossible to forget is that, is that the, the very, very few Jews who survived it and others wrote about how Jews assembling themselves at that intersection in Kiev thought that they would be safe, how they told themselves that they would be safe, that nothing could happen at this particular time of the year. So the times of the years, whatever their significance is meant to be in religious terms, take on this historical historical significance, which in a way leads me to the main theme or a main theme or a main argument of this book and this presentation, which is the attempt to separate out memory and, and history, to, to be respectful of memory, to see, to see its essence, to praise and approve the attempt to remember, but at the same time to ask the question, the memory of what? When I say that Babiyar happened um, on uh, the 26th of September 1941, that it was two days before Yom Kippur, that old women were wearing strings of onions, dried onions, around their neck for food as they prepared themselves for trains which weren't there. Um, when, I, when I remember that, when I remember that with the help of sources, when we all remember that, I think we're doing something which is important and essential. But what I want to stress is that I don't think it's sufficient the shooting of those 33,761 Jews over the ravine at Babiyar outside Kiev in September of 1941 is something that has to be remembered, but it's also something that has to be understood. This book is an interpretive book. It's an argumentative book. It makes arguments, and it's those arguments that I'm going to take my time this evening to try to present to you. Now, I begin with Babiyar not simply because of the date and not simply because of memory, but because this is the Holocaust, I believe, from which we must begin if we wish to understand. It's not just that we have forgotten disproportionately the Holocaust in the East. It's that the Holocaust in the East came first chronologically. It's not just that half of the Jews who died died in Eastern Europe by way of gunfire. Um, It is that this method of mass murder... The fact that Germans and others were able to kill Jews in such numbers so efficiently, so terribly efficiently in the East is what made the rest of the Holocaust possible. Because it, not the gas chambers which came later, it is what convinced human beings that this sort of thing was possible. The gas chambers were technical changes, but the convincing evidence that humans could do this to other humans was precisely the events like Babi Yar. So what I would like to do is offer you an explanation Where does it begin? The explanation begins with a worldview. It begins in in Hitler's mind. Not because anti-Semitism is enough to explain the Holocaust. I'm going to claim later that it's not. Indeed, I think the idea that anti-Semitism is enough to explain the Holocaust is a terribly naive idea. It's a terribly optimistic idea. Because if it were, it would be rather easy to prevent events like this from taking place in the future. Anti-Semitism matters a lot, but it's not the whole explanation. Indeed, when we think about Hitler, I think it's also a little naive to categorize him as an anti-Semite, as though there were simply anti-Semites and then more extreme anti-Semites and radical anti-Semites and then Hitler. Rather, I think with Hitler, it's essential to see that this view that we call anti-Semitism is a way of making the entire world make sense. It's a way of making a complicated, if you like, globalized world have a kind of harmony, which it does not, in fact, possess. What Hitler saw, or what he claimed that he saw, and I believe he really did see it in the world, was 
an unmitigated, ruthless, continuous racial war for resources. Hitler said that the struggle of races for resources was a law of nature. He said, quote, like a law of physics. Everything was reducible to that. There was nothing else in human life except that struggle. That struggle was what we were meant to do. Our race was our destiny. Members of our race were our comrades. Everyone else was our enemy. We were meant to struggle and take land from others and let, and let them starve. And that was it, as far as Hitler was concerned. Now, if that is everything that exists in human life, why do there seem to be other things? Where, for example, do these ideas come from that there might be, let's say, working-class solidarity? Where did the idea come from that one could sign a contract with someone who doesn't belong to one's race? What about the idea of Christian mercy, um, the Good Samaritan? What, for example, about the idea of law? What, for example, about the idea of the state itself, or even of science, a science that might improve the world? Hitler dismisses every single one of these things as Jewish ideas. And it's important that he distinguishes that he, that, he, that he dismisses all of them, not just some of them. Christianity and Bolshevism, he says, are essentially the same thing, right? Um, St. Paul, uh, Paul and Leon Trotsky, he says, are the same person. What he means is that there isn't really history. There is simply a past in which there are various kinds of Jewish deceptions. All of them amount to the same thing. All of them are attempts to distract human beings from what they really should be doing, which is killing each other for, for resources. It's very important that Hitler denies the idea of the state. This is, these are passages of Mein Kampf which we overlook, and I think we overlook them at our peril. Hitler makes explicit that the goal of any race is not the construction of a state. This cannot be the end of racial action. He makes very clear that when the racial struggle begins, borders will change and states will fall. And it's also very important, not just practically, but for the entire course of the Holocaust, that Hitler denies science. We have an image in our mind of, the, of Auschwitz, of the Holocaust, as being some kind of apogee of technology. To put it very briefly, it was not. Auschwitz was actually extraordinarily simple. The technologies which were, which were brought to bear to carry out the Holocaust were not high technology, even by the standards of the 1930s and 1940s, and certainly not on our own. The Holocaust... Hitler's ideas were in fact premised on a denial of science. Hitler explicitly says that there is no improvement in science, no agricultural technology, um, which, can, which can save us from the need to struggle with each other forever for resources. We have to shed blood on land and we have to claim it. And nothing can change that. Now, I, I stress this not just because the passages in Mein Kampf on irrigation, pesticides, and fertilizer are among the least read and cited passages of Mein Kampf, um, and I want to bring them to your attention. I also stress this because I think it is actually incredibly important. It's very important that Hitler does away both with ethics as a Jewish invention and with science as a Jewish invention, because what this allows him to do is to propose a substitute. And the substitute idea, which again I'd like to propose to you and reformulate a little bit, is called Lebensraum. Now, what, what is Lebensraum? What does Lebensraum mean? Why is Lebensraum so important? Lebensraum is important because it allows Hitler to take his fantastically abstract, although coherent, his fantastically abstract planetary anti-Semitism, this idea that Jews are responsible for all of the things, all of the ideas that distract Germans and others from racial war, and combine it with, one has to admit, a fairly supple understanding of the way humans actually behave politically. Okay, how does this work? It works because Lebensraum means two different things. On the one hand, Lebensraum means habitat. 
Um, it's brought into German to cover for the French word biotope. It means habitat, or we might say ecological niche. It means um, the particular part of the earth, the part of the ecosphere which supports one kind of life. So in this sense of the word, what Hitler means is Lebensbaum is what we must conquer. A superior race takes Lebensbaum from an inferior race, starves that inferior race to death, and then prospers by having taken that land and taking the food, and then it propagates itself. So on the one hand, Lebensbaum is about life. At the same time, and this is where things start to get interesting, and this is where one underestimates Hitler at one's peril, Lebensbaum has an entirely different meaning, or a meaning which is different enough that it's worth distinguishing, and that is the idea of comfort. So if you see the word Lebensraum, as you still occasionally do in an Austrian advertisement, they're not talking about conquering Ukraine. They're talking about what we would call living room, right? Not living space, but your living room, the place that's comfortable and cozy, where you can literally stretch out your legs, where you might take an extra meal during the day, right? Where the slippers are. And this, this, this conflation is extremely important because what it allows Hitler to do is to confuse lifestyle with life. On the one hand, Hitler says, we must take land from others in order to survive. He puts it very bluntly. But then almost in the next breath, in fact, sometimes in the very next sentence in his writings, he says that what Lebensbaum means is a standard of living comparable to that of the Americans. And he goes further than this. He goes further than this. And here he gets interesting and starts to sound like French theorists in the 1970s. When he's talking about the American dream, he means something which is subjective and relative. He says that, thanks to mass media, what German housewives want is whatever they think American housewives have. Now, that's a standard um, which cannot be attained, right? So what you face with Lebensraum is a kind of double insatiability. On the one hand, he is saying, um, we must struggle forever because we need to. On the other hand, he's saying, we must struggle forever because we want to. We must struggle forever to be comfortable. And in this way, lifestyle and life, need and want, biology and desire are brought together in a very effective mixture, and perhaps one that we understand a little bit more easily than we want to, one that is perhaps not so distant from some of the ways we look at life ourselves. Now, this brings me to the question of politics. I'm trying to claim first that Hitler's idea, his, his horribly coherent idea about a Jewish worldview, can, about, a Jew, about Jewish world domination, can be brought closer to human experience by, by way of Lebensraum. It can be made more concrete. We're going to conquer this territory. It's going to make us more comfortable. I also need to claim that he could come to power with these ideas. We know that he did, but how was that actually possible? Well, it was possible essentially for two reasons. Um, the first of these is that Hitler was able, he was, as a, as a, as a tactful politician, he, he was able to push the more radical claims into the background as necessary. A, a crucial example of this is 1933, the very moment when he comes to power. If we have read Mein Kampf, we know that Hitler cares above all about the fertile land of Ukraine. That's the black earth of the title of my book. Um, that is the Lebensraum of Hitler's ideas. Ukraine is a special territory in Europe, which if you conquer it, allows you to become a world empire. It's, Ukraine is, all, is everything you need for life and for comfort. Ukraine is at the center of things. In 1933, when Hitler comes to power in Germany, in fact, as he is carrying out his electoral campaign, the one which will consolidate his power in Germany, millions of people are starving to death in Ukraine. 
What does Hitler say about this? Does he use this as an occasion to talk about the need to conquer Ukraine as a breadbasket? No, he says something much more humble, something much more conservative. He says, well, if you look at this, you see where left-wing politics will take you. Right? And that's all he says. He doesn't go any further than that. Right? Instead of appealing to the radical idea of seizing this territory, he uses it in his electoral speeches just as, as, as a little jab at the social democrats and the communists who were his enemies in the election. He's able to push his message back down. The, 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 the second way that Hitler's able to come to power is that, or he's able to use power, is that once he's won elections, as he's consolidating power, he's able to bring together ideas of the race and of the state and in an extraordinarily interesting way. Let me try to explain this by explaining Hitler's dilemma. You might think that once Hitler comes to power, then everything is easy. And sometimes when you read the Holocaust story, when you read Holocaust history, you get that impression. The big events were 1933. I don't think that's actually right. When he comes to power in 1933, he faces the dilemma. He is a racial anarchist. What does a racial anarchist do when he controls a state? And he's not the only one. He runs a whole party full of racial anarchists who have just won elections. What are they going to do? This is, this is a bit of a dilemma, right? Because their whole ideology says not that we control a state and administer it. Their ideology says we stir up racial conflict and then we win territory. And indeed, up until 1933, that's what they had been doing. They'd been delegitimizing the state. They'd been fighting on the streets. They'd been trying to win the state by delegitimizing it. Now what do you do once you have the state? And the way Hitler handles this problem is politically extraordinarily subtle, supple and also threatening for the future. What he does is he separates out the SS, one of his, one of his paramilitaries from the SA, and the SS becomes the force which delays, if you like, the gratification of violence. The SS become the people who, who accept that there's going to be a bloody re revolutionary conflict, but we have to wait. We have to wait until Germany goes to war. The SA, the brown shirts, the people who took Hitler's message more literally, who thought that revolution should continue, right, that revolution was continuous, these were the people who were beaten and defeated and murdered in the night of the long knives in, 19, in 1934. So Hitler is able to contain um, the racial character of his own party and prepare for some future conflict. We read a lot about the 1930s, 1933 to 1939. I'm going to claim that the real meaning of 1933 to 1939 is as preparation for the violence that was to come. The concentration camps are not significant because they repressed so many Germans. They did not, in fact, repress so many Germans before the war. They were significant because they were laboratories in statelessness. They were laboratories in lawlessness run by the SS, which was a racial and not a political organization. They were, they, were, they, were, they were models for the basic kind of policy which could be applied to whole other countries which, once Germany began a war in 1939. Um, the, the SS itself, right, they are, they are a racial organization. Their job is not to, to, to function within a state. Their fundamental job is to destroy states. And this is, the, this is the critical thing that can happen after 1938. What can happen after 1938, what can happen after Germany begins wars in 1939, is the SS can actually destroy states and make things happen beyond Germany which were not possible in Germany itself. Now, let me try to be a little bit clearer about this. Let's try to be clear about what the limits Germany faced were before 1939. Because again, between 1933 and 1939, only a couple hundred, a couple hundred Jews are killed in Germany as a whole, right? So, I mean, far fewer than Americans killed by gun accidents in a month, right? I mean, just to sort of keep proportions. A couple hundred, maybe a couple hundred more commit suicide. Not very many. 
The killing begins in earnest only in 1939, only after the war begins, and we have to have some kind of explanation for that. This is the explanation. You can only carry out so much violence inside a state if you mean to use that state to destroy other states. That is, that is the, that's the circle that Hitler squares. He preserves the German state, he, he, he builds up racial capacity within it, and then he unleashes that on other countries. How does this look? Well, the most important example, the most important case for how this looks is Poland. One of the things I try to do in this book, and I think this is very important, is to keep the histories of other countries in play the entire time. So, again, when the Holocaust is narrated, what usually happens is you have Germans, 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 some more Germans, some Jews, some Germans, some Jews, and some Germans, and then you get to 1939, and then all of a sudden other people spring out into the text, people whose states you have heard nothing about, whose societies have not been introduced, right? And this is, even if you only care about Jews, which is not a position I recommend, the huge majority of European Jews live beyond the boundaries of Germany. 97% of the victims of the Holocaust are going to be Jews who live beyond Germany. So what I'm trying to do in narrating the Holocaust is to make sure that other states, like for example Poland, are present before German power arrives. Because only then can you have a sense of what German power does. You can't know what it means to Polish society or the Polish state or to Polish Jews, who are going to be most of the victims of the Holocaust, unless you have some idea how they live beforehand. Which is not to say that everything was great in Poland. On the contrary, if you look at Polish history and German history side by side, what you find is a competition or a kind of mismatch between two different versions of of official anti-Semitism. And it was this competition or this mismatch or this difference um, which I think is very illuminating. What What the Nazis were planning to do is to bring their whole society towards anti-Semitism, then destroy institutions abroad, and then see what that allowed them to do with Jews. That's one, that's one version. The Polish version was, 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 was rather different. Polish government faced a society, which I think it's fair to say was already much more anti-Semitic in its behaviors and expressions than German society. Pol- the Polish government was trying to contain that anti-Semitism or channel it outwards by sending, this was the official goal, 90% of its own Jews abroad to somewhere like Madagascar or somewhere like Palestine. Indeed, the interwar Polish government went so far in this goal that it actually organized, trained, funded, and armed right-wing, uh, right-wing Jewish Zionists. It trained them the very methods they used against the British later on, which is a whole interesting story. It's part of the prehistory of Israel, and I do write about this a little bit in the book, partly out of its inherent interest. But my point here is to say that these two versions of anti-Semitism were not the same thing. They're not different points on a spectrum. It's not that the Poles were more and the Germans were less. It's that they were different. What the Nazi idea was all about was destroying states. What the Polish idea was all about was preserving the Polish state and, if necessary, sending the Jews off to found some other state. So in late 1938 and early 1939, the Germans and the the Poles come to a kind of disagreement. The Germans are saying, the Nazis are saying, Hitler is saying personally, what we must do together is invade and destroy the Soviet Union. And this has been Hitler's big idea from the beginning. He should invade and and destroy the Soviet Union in order to seize Ukrainian food. He should invade and destroy the Soviet Union because that will be a first step, he thinks, on the march to ending Jewish world domination. He says that Jews are Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks are Jews. And so the first thing to do to end world domination by Jews is to break down the Soviet Union. The Poles are mystified by this because they do not see how you simultaneously start a big war in Eastern Europe and get rid of the Jews. From their point of view, getting rid of the Jews involves recruiting the British to allow them to go to Palestine. 
or recruiting the French to allow the Jews to go to Madagascar, or something like this. They do not see the logic that we can now see in retrospect, which is that it is a war against the Soviet Union. It is the destruction of institutions in the Soviet Union, which is going to allow the Holocaust to proceed. So this is, in a sense, the, 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 the lucky accident which Hitler seizes. He wants to be allies with the Poles, or at least he wants them to step aside and let him invade the Soviet Union. When they resist, what happens? He switches gears very fast. Instead of recruiting the Poles for a war against the Soviet Union, he recruits the Soviet Union for a war against Poland. This is the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of August 1939. And this means, again, almost by accident, that, that Germany destroys the Polish state. And it destroys the Polish state in a new way. Austria had been destroyed in 1938. When Austria was destroyed in 1938, worse things happened to Jews in six weeks than happened to German Jews in six years. Germany managed to destroy Czechoslovakia in 1938-1939. Czechoslovak Jews were appropriated and expelled much faster than German Jews as a result. It was the end of the state, the end of their protection by the state that was crucial, much more important than the progressive discrimination inside Germany itself. So Germans had learned that going abroad was the way to address what they saw as the Jewish problem. But Poland was different. Poland was more radical because Poland was the first war. Under cover of war, the Germans could do things they couldn't do before. In particular, they could send Einsatzgruppen, special units, task forces, led by the SS, into Poland to destroy the Polish state. Now, at this point, the phrase destroy the Polish state probably sounds abstract to you. What do I mean in particular? I mean that the Germans not only defeated the Polish army, destroyed all Polish institutions, they declared that Polish law didn't function. They declared, in fact, that it had never functioned retroactively, that Poland was never a state, legally, and that what they were doing was, in effect, was conquering territory which had been thus, thus far undescribed and unclaimed, and that the people who lived there were nothing better than, in effect, barbarians. They went actually back to Roman law to find precedence for this kind of, for this kind of action. So when I say destroy the state, I mean that they were quite thoroughgoing politically and conceptually, but I also mean they were quite thoroughgoing, as they would put it, biologically. They sorted out the people who they thought were the Polish ruling class, and they murdered them. By the, by the tens of thousands. Now, this is all very relevant for the history of the Jews because, as I'm arguing, it is this progressively more radical destruction of the state which opens up more possibilities to do things for Jew, to, to, against Jews. The idea that Jews should all be eradicated is present from the beginning, of course. The concept that Jews are responsible for everything which is holding the Germans back is present throughout the war. But the ability to actually implement these ideas is dependent upon the degree of state destruction. So when the Germans come into Poland, they can do things they couldn't do elsewhere. There's no civil code, there's no property, so the Jews can be taken from their homes and from their towns and from their villages and put into ghettos. Ghettos are an important but slightly stereotypical image. What I'm trying to stress about them is something different. Someone put in a ghetto is someone who's been deprived of property rights, okay? So this is going to be my terribly conservative, you know, moment. Property rights are, are unbelievably important, and the right, not, the right to have your body, not habeas corpus, to not to have your body move from one place to another is extremely important. The end of the Polish Civil Code meant that Jews could be taken from one place to another. They could be put in ghettos where they would die. Now, this, though, is not yet a final solution. Jews are going to die in the tens of thousands in ghettos of malnutrition. They're going to die of tens of th in the tens of thousands of hunger. But this is not yet the final solution as we know it. This is not yet going to be the condition which permits the mass murder of Jews. Things are getting worse. But things are only going to reach that point in 1941 when Germany invades the Soviet Union. Okay, here I'm going to take a big step back. 
When you talk about Germany and the Soviet Union in the same book, in the same lecture, in the same article, in the same lifetime, the immediate assumption is that you're going to say, well, everything that people did against the Jews was okay because the Jews were communists and the communists were Jews. So I just want to just take a big step back and, 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 and just note from the beginning that that is not my argument. I am not going to claim that the Holocaust happened to the Jews because the Jews were all communists. Okay? When I'm in Eastern Europe, that is what very often people tell me. Aren't you aware, Professor Snyder, that the reason this happened was because the Jews were all communists? And then I have to explain that's not why. Often when I'm beyond Eastern Europe, um, what people tell me is, aren't you aware that if you mention the Soviet Union, you're basically saying that the Jews deserved it? No. I'm not saying that the Jews deserved it. What I am saying is that the encounter of German and Soviet power created special and unprecedented conditions which turned out to be opportunities for the Germans, conditions which had never been present before and which they learned to exploit. Okay, what do I mean in particular? When the, when, when the Soviets and the, and the Germans make their alliance in 1939, when, when Hitler betrays the Poles and instead enlists the Soviets to start his war in Eastern Europe in 1939, what happens territorially? Territorially, Poland is divided. Okay? Um, roughly half of Poland ends up under German control, roughly half under Soviet control. Relatedly, the Soviets are allowed to occupy, annex, and destroy the state institutions of the three Baltic states. Now, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the destruction of the Baltic states, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and Katyn, which happens because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, these are generally national histories. The Lithuanians will want you to know that there was a Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The Poles will want you to know that there was cutting. And that those are important questions. What happens to Lithuanian elites? What happens to Polish officers? What I'm trying to stress to you, however, is how the Soviet takeover and the Soviet transformation of politics and society was going to be relevant for the Holocaust. And this is a point where the two sides just don't meet. The, the national historians in Eastern Europe generally just want you to know how much they suffered so that perhaps that can be compared to other suffering. I'm not doing that. In general, historians of the Holocaust do not mention the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact at all. You can go back and check. And the reason they don't mention it at all is because this business of the Soviets coming into Eastern Europe is just too confusing. What I want to do is something else entirely. I want to say that it's not, it's not national, it's not about competitive suffering, and it's not confusing, it's not something that can be marginalized, that it's absolutely the center of the darkest depths of this politics of mass destruction. Okay, that's a big claim. What do I mean? I mean this. Three important things happen with the Soviet intervention, which make the Holocaust more likely. When the Germans invade the Soviet Union in 1941, they are not invading the Soviet Union. They are invading the territories which the Soviet Union has just taken from Poland, has just taken from the Baltic states. The very first people they encounter are not pre-war Soviet citizens. They are people whose institutions have just been destroyed by the Soviet Union. This generates these three sources of, of plausibility for something like a Holocaust. The first is this. Imagine that, I don't even know where you're from. I'll say Britain. Imagine that Britain was destroyed essentially overnight by the United States of America, right? Just imagine, it was just gone. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Do you have any idea how bad, like you would have to watch Trump on television, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Now you can like switch, right? You can go, you can go Trump, Corbyn, Trump, Corbyn. <laughs> they have the same Russia policy. How interesting. Um, the, uh, but, so, but, but in all seriousness, imagine that, that, that Britain as a sovereign state was just wiped out. How, what kind of emotional resource would that create? Many people would have the desire to restore 
Britain. Okay? And Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia were literally destroyed, which created something like a political resource. It meant that the Germans, whatever their own goals were, could appeal to and exploit the political desire to restore states, which is not, by the way, the same thing as some kind of radical nationalism. I'm asking you to imagine that a state was destroyed and then imagine who would care about that, which is a lot of people. The second way that Soviet policies prepare the way has to do with collaboration. But I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say, okay? I'm not going to say the Jews collaborated with the Soviets and therefore it was okay for the East Europeans to kill the Jews. That is ethnic nonsense. That's ethnic nonsense. First of all, it didn't happen that way. And secondly, that would be morally absurd. What happened was this. Everybody collaborated with the Soviets because that's what Soviet rule was like. When we talk about collaboration with the Germans, we're always talking about selective collaboration. The Germans were racial snobs. The Germans were racial murderers. They didn't recruit everyone to their system. They were highly discriminatory against Slavs and, of course, against Jews in a different way. The Soviets, whatever their flaws might have been, were universalists who brought to other people the same system that they had at home, which meant not only that everyone could collaborate, it essentially meant that everyone had to collaborate. Whether you were Jewish or Belarusian or Tatar or whatever, it didn't make any difference. In some way or another, you were going to be brought into the system, whether this was by way of public elections in which you had to take part, whether this was by way of the almost universal denunciation of one's neighbors that the Soviet system was so good at eliciting. Basically, everyone took part in one way or another. Now, the fact that everyone took part in the Soviet system creates enormous political possibility for the Germans when they come in. Because when the Germans come in, what do they say? They say, remember, the communists are Jews and the Jews are communists, which is not a description of reality. It's an anti-Semitic trope, one which is still very powerful, but which is an anti-Semitic trope. Most of the collaborators in Eastern Europe, the huge majority, in fact, were not Jews. Jews were slightly more likely to collaborate than other people, but the huge majority of active political collaborators were non-Jews, which means what? It means that when the Germans come into Ukrainian village and they encounter Ukrainian policemen who have just spent two years working for the Soviets, deporting Poles, deporting Jews, deporting other Ukrainians, what do those Ukrainian policemen say? Do they say, hello, I'm guilty of collaborating with the Soviets? No. They say, it's just as you say, you wise Germans. All of the collaborators were Jews, and let me point out some Jews in the neighboring house. Okay? Now, why does this not appear in the German sources? Because you can work as hard as you want, and you will not find sources from Germans on the Eastern Front saying, I was yet again today outwitted by local Slavs. Those sources do not exist and will not be found, which does not mean that it doesn't happen. There was a political encounter in which Judeo-Bolshevism, this idea that Jews were Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks were Jews, allowed Germans to elicit, elicit collaboration and allowed local people to push off responsibility for Soviet collaboration onto the Jews. And then when Jews were murdered, that responsibility, in effect, goes away. That's, that's the second way that Soviet occupation prepares the way for German occupation. There's a third way, which there are actually more, but I'm just going to mention a third, which is property. Okay? So when we think about the expropriation of Jews, we think about Germany in the 1930s. But the Soviets were actually the experts on expropriation. They were very, very good at it, and they were very, very fast about it. They expropriated the, essentially the entire bourgeoisie and middle classes of Eastern Europe very, very quickly. It so happens that those people were, in their majority in Jewish town, in towns at least, Jews, which means that all the Jewish property had gone away, and when the Germans came in, it was suddenly up for grabs. What happened then? 
did the Slavs and the Balts say, you know, um, you know, new German masters, that shop used to belong to a Jew? No, they took it themselves, right? And the Germans beat back the Jews if the Jews tried to make any property claims, which meant that everyone then had one more incentive to make sure that Jews never came back. So I'm not saying that the Soviets intended these things. They didn't. They intended to keep these territories. But the way that they carried out their own policies in these ways made something like a Holocaust more likely, something, something that it was, it was possible to achieve. Okay, now... It is here in Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, in what was Eastern Poland, and then in the pre-war Soviet Union, that the Holocaust becomes industrial killing. It's not in Auschwitz. It's not in the death factories. It's in Eastern Europe over pits. The Einsatzgruppen come in in the summer of 1941 with orders to kill Jewish males, which they do. This very quickly expands um, to instructions from Hitler to kill women and children and, in effect, entire villages. It turns out, and the Germans did not know this, that their own policemen and soldiers were willing to take part in this kind of action. They did not know this. In fact, they did not expect it, but it was true. And the result was that, although we remember the Einsatzgruppen, and forget everyone else, because the Einsatzgruppen were the ones who were tried after the war, the guilt was contained in the Einsatzgruppen, only about 2,000 people. Um, in fact, German policemen, often regular German policemen, very often with no special training, killed more people than the Einsatzgruppen did, far more people, and were involved in every single large massacre, which they had to be, if you think about it, because you can't kill 33,761 people as at Babiar with just a few Einsatzgruppen troops. You have to enlist soldiers. You have have to enlist policemen, which is in fact how it happened. So um, the Einsatzgruppen begin. Other Germans are in effect recruited along. Locals take ever-increasing part as the mechanisms for recruiting them are found. The initial German assumption was that the locals, being stupid subhuman barbarians, will just rise up against their Jewish masters and pogroms. And there is a fair amount of that. But the pogroms are generally stimulated by the Germans, and the locals go along. What the Germans discover is that this is not a way forward to the final solution. The way forward to the final solution is to recruit the ones who are most willing to take part in pogroms and then train them to carry out mass shooting actions, which is another way the Holocaust expands. But my, my point is that the, the, the Holocaust, the crucial things the Germans need to learn about the final solution, they learn in the fall of 1941. They learn how to do it, they learn that Germans will do it, and they learn that enough locals will do it for, 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 for mass murder to be carried out. Now, what was the first killing like that? I started with Babiar, which was the first time that more than 30,000, as far as I know, human beings were ever shot in a single episode. But the first time that the Germans managed to shoot more than 10,000 Jews was a few weeks before that in a town, a little city of which you probably never heard, Kamyanets Podilsky, um, in, western, in western Ukraine. Why do I mention that? Because it helps us to see something which otherwise we might not see. I've made the argument thus far that the Germans were able to kill Jews insofar as state, states were destroyed, that Austria created some freedom, Czechoslovakia more, Poland was the next step, and then this confrontation with Soviet power was the final opening of possibility. But what about, what about in reverse? What about when the state exists? Kamyanets Podilsky helps us to think about that. Kamyanets Podilsky is extremely interesting. I'm going to have to ask you to follow me in its extraordinarily complex detail for just a moment. When Czechoslovakia was destroyed in 1938 and 1939, a couple of things happened which are extremely revelatory for the history of the Holocaust as a whole. The first is Slovakia. When Czechoslovakia becomes Slovakia, what happens to the citizens of Czechoslovakia? There's a moment, there's an interval, when they are not citizens, when they're citizens of nothing, 
until the Slovak constitution is established. In that moment, as Hannah Arendt pointed out, anything is possible. You can do whatever you want with those people. For example, you can write a constitution and a set of laws in which Jews become second-class citizens, which is what the Slovaks did. At which point, when, they, when, the, when the Jews have no property rights legally and are second-class citizens politically, they then become, as the Slovak leadership said, a burden. Right? They become a burden. The question then arises, what to do with this burden? And what does this then become? This becomes the first major transit to the German death facility at Auschwitz, to the German camp at Auschwitz. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that when states are taken apart, there is a direct connection to what happens to the Jews. And I'm getting to Kamenitz Podilski. The far east of Czechoslovakia, there was a place, it was a place called, um, called Subcarpathian Ruthenia, right? For you Ukrainians out there, Transcarpathia. Uh, in Subcarpathian Ruthenia, Hungary took the territory, but it didn't take the Jews. It decided that the Jews would have to prove that they deserved citizenship, and in practice, never gave it to them, or almost never. What did this mean? It meant that in 1941, when Germany invades the Soviet Union, it encounters not only the Jews who are already there, it encounters the Jews which, hung, which Hungary, meanwhile, deported from Subcarpathian Ruthenia. Right? So it, it created a refugee crisis if you like, by not accepting people as citizens and then by sending them out of its own country right into the path of the Wehrmacht. What happens then? This becomes the occasion for a certain SS commander, a man called Friedrich Jekyll, to try to figure out what to do with these people. And what he does with them is that he gathers them along with local Jews to a place outside Kamienz Podilski and he has 23,600 of them shot. In this way, taking apart states, even bit by bit, becomes a way in which Jews can be excluded and in which they can be killed. So the, the argument that I'm trying to make is that it's you can run is that you can you can you can say that you can make this claim both forwards and backwards. You can follow, and this is what I do in the book, you can follow the Germans forward as they destroy states, and you can see how that opens up possibilities and leads into this moment in 1941 when you see how the Holocaust is possible. And then you can go back. You can go back westward or southward and look at the states that already exist and see which Jews survive and which ones die. And this becomes, I think, a very telling exercise because as of 1941 or early 1942, it's not just that Hitler has the idea that the Jews should be eradicated. It's that it is clear to the German leadership that all Jews should be killed. But the way this works out in practice is actually quite variegated. Where the state is totally destroyed or where the Germans don't recognize the existence of a state, roughly 95% of Jews will die. In places where there is a state, even if it's the German state, roughly half the Jews will survive. Now, each story is a little bit different, and I don't have time to tell all of them to you, but it's the, it's the politics, it's how much politics that is left which basically, which basically gives you the result that you want. I'm going to give you a couple of really telling examples. What I think are telling anyway. Estonia and Denmark. In Estonia, 99% of the Jews die. In Denmark, 99% of the Jews live. Now, you're probably going to suspect that I'm going to tell you this is not because the Danes are so much nicer than the Estonians, and it's not. It's not because we can document that the Estonians were anti-Semitic and the Danes were philo-Semitic. That is certainly not the case. If anything, it's the other way around. In the 1930s, the Danes refused to accept German refugee, German Jewish refugees. All those people were sent back and murdered. What happens in Denmark is that you have a very conventional occupation. The king stays, the government stays, the parliament stays, they have democratic elections under German 
occupation. When the Germans decide to carry out the final solution, they bring in people from the east who have seen how it's done. The person who's supposed to lead it is a police officer from Katowice, which, you know, if your Polish geography is not right at the tip of your tongue, that he was the person responsible for Auschwitz, right? So he knows what the Holocaust is. He comes to Denmark and he says, in these conditions, in these political conditions, this is impossible. And he's right. The compromise the Germans reach with the Danes is the Danes are going to put their Jews, and it is a compromise because the Germans could have stopped it at any moment. They could have shot down those boats just as easy as you can imagine. They allow the Danes to send their Jews across the water to Sweden, which retrospectively becomes a very nice story. But for our purposes, it's a story about politics. In Estonia, where 99% die, you have the opposite. It's also a small country. It's also on the Baltic. But rather than a normal German occupation, you have a Soviet occupation and then a German occupation. You have all the political potential for the killing of Jews, and that potential is, is fulfilled. And the people who killed Jews in Estonia, and this is probably worth noting because it's, it's part of a general fact, the people who killed Jews in Estonia also kill other people. In the zone of statelessness, all of the German crimes take place. The, the, the Estonian policemen actually kill about ten times as many non-Jews as they kill Jews. Right? And the point being that it's in the East where those kinds of things in general are possible. Very briefly again, the Netherlands and France. 75% of the Jews in France survive. 75% of the Jews in the Netherlands die. Is this because the Dutch are more anti-Semitic than the French? No one has ever made that case to my knowledge. Observers at the time, as well as historians today, agree, as far as I know, to a person that anti-Semitism was more of a social and political problem in France than in the Netherlands. The difference is that France remains, even if you don't have to like Vichy, France remains a sovereign state, which pursues its own anti-Semitic policy and which can change its own anti-Semitic policy, which prefers to send away stateless Jews. An interesting and telling fact is that more Polish Jews are killed in the French Holocaust than French Jews are, which in, in my view is where every history of the Holocaust in France should start. I think that should be the first sentence in every history of the Holocaust in France. More Polish Jews are killed in the French Holocaust than French Jews. Why? Because Polish Jews have no state to protect them, and because the French state has an anti-foreigner policy, and because the German state will take those people and kill them. The German state will not take Jews who are citizens of a country that doesn't want them killed and kill them. The passport will stop the bullet. The passport will stop the bullet. The state has to either be destroyed or it has to renounce its own Jews for the Jews to be killed. This means, for example, that Romania, which carried out its own massive policy of killing Jews, which killed something like a quarter of a million, maybe as many as 330,000 Jews, can change its policy in 1942 and go from killing them to again recognizing them as its citizens, which doesn't mean that Antonescu was a particularly good person, right? It just means that sovereignty has a very crucial effect on what's going to happen. Sovereignty, citizenship, and even remarkably, I think, I'm getting to the end. Remarkably, bureaucracy. If there's one institution which has a bad name in the Holocaust, it's bureaucracy. The bureaucracy did not kill the Jews. We believe that the Germans classified their own population, separated, separated everyone out, concentrated the Jews in one place and killed them. That never happened. Then they never even got to the first step. They never even agreed on the definition of who was a Jew. The way that they killed the Jews was they destroyed states beyond Germany, they killed Jews there, and then they sent their own Jews to those bureaucracy-free zones where there were no regulations there were, and there were no laws because there was no state. German Jews were killed not in Germany in the Holocaust, not in pre-war Germany. They were killed in places like Łódź or Minsk or Riga, all of which had been Jewish metropolises before the war, but all of which were radically transformed by 
by German power. Now, this leads me to where I want to conclude, which is with the important question of rescue. Rescue is often where we begin when we commemorate the Holocaust. I'm ending with rescue for a reason. The reason I'm ending with rescue is that I want you to understand just how almost impossibly difficult it was, at least in the stateless zones, which is, which is the place that matters, and what are the things that enabled it. The people who could rescue, the people who did rescue large numbers of Jews were diplomats. Diplomats. Not because diplomats are better people, but because diplomats had the power, the almost magical power, to confer state recognition to people in zones of statelessness. So when, when Ralph Wallenberg volunteers, I'll say something nice about Americans, with American money, um, to, he is funded by the Americans, it was our project, it was the only thing we did to stop the Holocaust, basically. Um, Wallenberg, when Wallenberg comes to Hungary, just that, as, as, as Hungarian Jews in Budapest are about to be killed, and hands out more than 10,000 pieces of paper, he can do that because officially he's, he's, he's a diplomat. When Sugihara in Lithuania saves thousands and thousands of Jews, he can do that because he's a diplomat. Brazil, uh, Portuguese, Portuguese diplomats, Spanish diplomats, American diplomats do this thing. They do it because they can. Generally, they're not following orders. They do it because they can. Now, the point here is that most people can't do things like that. And most rescue situations were therefore impossible. People didn't have diplomatic immunity, and they didn't have the ability to hand out pieces of paper that would save others. So there are rescuers. There are thousands of rescuers. But my point in the second half of the book, where I spend a lot of time describing how rescue is and isn't possible, is that in conditions of statelessness, when all the incentives were directed against rescue, very few people did it. And when you argue along this line far enough, which is how I spend the last 150 pages or so of the book, you, you get to this place. You get to the place where you can't define the motives of rescuers. The motives of rescuers you can only call, as the rescue Jews themselves called those motives, humanity or decency or something vague like this, because you don't have any way to connect their actions with rationality. You have no way to connect their actions with the outside world. The problem, though, um, and this is where I want to end, the problem, with, the problem though, with this is that these people are so few, which is why we can't really begin with them. I understand that in a Kantian sense, we have to remember them, that they are exemplary, right? They are the people who treated other human beings as an end in themselves. But from my point of view, they have to be at the end of the story because even though, precisely because they were exemplary, they were exceptional, or rather precisely because they were exceptional, they were exemplary. If we were serious about as I, as I worry that we're not, if we were serious about learning the lessons of the Holocaust, it wouldn't be enough to say we should behave like them. It's important, but it wouldn't be enough for the very simple reason that, um, I, I hesitate to say it, but we wouldn't, or very, very few of us would, in those kinds of conditions, behave in that way. So what, it, what follows from this, then, is that if it's possible, as I've tried to do, and thank you for your patience, to make a causal interpretive argument about the Holocaust, if it's possible that the Holocaust should be treated as history as well as memory, if it's possible that there are actually, there are actually general arguments that can be drawn from it, those might also be the things that we should apply now. And, and, and there are two things that I would stress, and they may not seem totally irrelevant to the present moment. The first is that politics, basic politics, the presence of institutions are important. So whatever we do, we should not use the Holocaust as an argument for destroying state institutions. We might instead use the Holocaust as a reason to bolster them. The second point is ecological. We forget 
that Hitler's planetary view, that Hitler's particular global anti-Semitism makes more sense, is resonant when developed countries and others are uncertain about supplies of food. Our generations are special, and I'm looking at all of you here now. Our generations are special because we have grown up, in, at least in the Western world, in this very, in this unique historical moment where food supplies have not been a political issue. This need not be permanent, and it need not apply to China. It need not apply to much of the world in the near future. So another thing we ought to be concerned about is whether or not this, the, the, the sense of reliable access to food and other resources is something that can be preserved. And as I, as I close on this note, I want you to remember what Lebensbaum actually is. Lebensbaum is not the real fear that you're going to starve to death. Lebensbaum is the willing to start, willingness to starve other people to death in the name of your own security and comfort. And I'm afraid it's that combination, it's that combination which is a little bit nearer to us and others than we would like it to be, and that's the second lesson that I would try to draw from the Holocaust. So I ask you to remember, I ask you to remember Babiar, if, if that can be some kind of apology for giving this lecture on this day, I, actually, I ask you to remember that, but I guess I'm also asking you, as Hannah Arendt would ask you to do, to think, to think about what the causes are because if we take the Holocaust out from behind the museum glass or out from behind the plexiglass and we put it inside history, then we accept that it has causes. And if we accept that it has causes, then it has lessons. If it has lessons, then it has lessons for us. If it's history, it's contemporary, because all history is contemporary. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. Um, we're living in a moment when we're watching the destruction of states in the Middle East very dramatically um, and very rapidly happening before our eyes. So I, um, I, uh, it's a very good moment to be having this conversation and, and, and some of these discussions. Um, I will take the privilege of the chair. Would you prefer to stand? I'll stand. Sit yeah, I'll, I'll stand. I think Tim prefers to dominate. No, I mean, I, at first, I prefer to sit next to you, and then I realized that people are going to ask questions, so I'm going to stand. Okay. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll ask one question. Okay. Um, you know, I was I was very struck also in your book and in your in your lecture by the comparison of Estonia and Denmark, which is a very convincing one. You know that you have two states very similar in size and in some ways. Um, uh, you know, it's economics and so on, and yet one in one of them all the Jews died, and one of them very few of them did. Um, and of course, the traditional way—I think I have a memory of it as a child of reading a book about the Jews of Denmark, um, which mm -hmm. stuck in my head. You know, one does assume that it is something to do with the nature of the Danes and Danishness and Danish mm -hmm. goodness and the kinds of people who live there. Um, and that, in a way, is an intuitive understanding of the Holocaust that almost everybody has. Immediately, people want to, to explain the Holocaust. People want to look at the history of German anti-Semitism or the history of Polish anti-Semitism. But it seems to me, and the nature of Germanness and I, I, you know, German intellectual history, why did it lead to this and so on. But you're making a different argument. You're saying that actually the nature of Danishness or the nature of Estonianness had nothing to do with it. That you know what happened was um, was to do with institutions and was to do with a, a certain set of circumstances and so on. Um, 
you know, that goes very much against the intuition that lots of people have about the Holocaust. You know, why did it happen? Because some people are yeah. nicer and some people are worse. Yeah. Um, but doesn't that also somehow rob Denmark of its individuality and Estonia of its individuality? Do, they, do you not count the national histories and the national, um, I don't know, national psyche as part of the argument as well? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, you're right. I'm pushing what seems at first to be a pretty radical position, but which I hope, upon reflection, seems more commonsensical. And I'm going to start this from a slightly obnoxious point. I I think that the the events of the Holocaust are themselves so powerful that that they're paradigmatic. That is, they create the paradigm in which we discuss them, and we don't realize we're moving around within that paradigm. So I have in mind ethnicity in particular. We, we, we take for granted, and I know we take it for granted because I've been talking about these things for a long time with a lot of people all over the world. We take it for granted that it's okay to say, well, weren't the Jews communists or weren't the Jews uh, submissive or weren't the Ukrainians nationalists or weren't the Ukrainians anti-Semites or weren't the Germans anti-Semites or weren't the Poles anti-Semites or whatever it might be. As we take for granted that a legitimate first move in the conversation is to assume the existence of an ethnic group and then make a, a totalizing statement about that ethnic group. That's a Nazified discussion. That's a Nazified discussion. That is us moving within the categories that are created by the Holocaust instead of finding analytic categories that explain the Holocaust. I'm perfectly willing to accept that Ukrainian history and Danish history and Estonian history have their own dynamics and frameworks. What I'm not willing to accept is that they can be explained in internal ethnic terms. So the case that I'm making in this book is a case for politics. When I say that 99% of of, of Jews die in Estonia and 99% die in Denmark, um, I'm I'm not trying to say either that Estonians are bad or that Danes are good. What I'm trying to do, as, as I know you understand, is to explain how people subjected to different conditions behave in different ways. And of course, those conditions then become part of Estonian history. If you're Estonian, you then have to ask, well, you can't, why did so many of us go along? And you'll face temptations in telling your national history that Danes won't face. Like, for example, Estonians can say, well, we had to do it um, because, because of the Soviet occupation. The Danes can't say that because they had no Soviet occupation. Like, the history really is different. But in all of the cases, what I'm trying really hard to do is to make sure that we don't take ethnicity as, as, the, as, as what explains it. Now, this isn't just a kind of, you know, it's not just that I'm some kind of unbelievably rootless cosmopolitan, although I plead guilty. It's, it's, it's also that um, methodologically, when we start with ethnicity, we then immediately crowd out all the other things which I think have explanatory power. And if we start with ethnicity, we tell stories which I think just in, in, in brute quantitative terms just don't work. So if ethnicity were it, then why did the Holocaust come from Germany? The Germans were just not the most anti-Semitic people in Europe. They're not in the top half, um, but the Holocaust comes out of Germany. Why do so many Dutch Jews die when almost everyone would accept that the Dutch were, if not the most tolerant, one of the most tolerant peoples in Europe, yet they had East European rates of the murder of Jews. It's 75%. That's above, that's above Romania, which had its own policy of murdering Jews. It's substantially above Romania. It's above Hungary, um, which betrayed some of its Jews to the Germans, sent many of its Jews to die in Auschwitz. It's above most East European countries. The only countries that are higher than the Netherlands are places like the Baltic States and Poland. How do you get there? You can't get there by, by talking about Dutch national character, which I'm happy to accept is like that there is something like that. But you can get there by saying things like this. 
that the German occupation of the Netherlands was much more like an East European occupation in that the Dutch, the Dutch government left, the monarch left. It was the only East European government where the occupation authority was dominated by the SS, and the SS carried things out their way in the Netherlands, by contrast to France. Right, which is why things are so different. It's not that the French are nice and the Dutch are not. It's that the nature of the occupation was, was, was different. So is, that, is, the, is the logical conclusion then that really anybody of any nationality you know, any, in, in any space would be capable of doing this if the organs of the state and the structures of society were moved? That, I would say that's a better starting assumption and the, 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 not, I mean, it's, it's not literally true to say that anyone would, because we know that some people actually, in the, worst, in the worst of circumstances, didn't. But, and, and I prefer to talk about individuals than the, the nations. But yeah, I think, it, the, 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 I think a good starting methodological assumption is that in a situation of, you know, let's call it ecological panic, panic, foreign invasion, and state destruction, with a deliberate incentivization of the murder of Jews, yeah, people would tend to go along. And even the exceptions are not good exceptions. I mean, even the British don't come off so well in this. Right. Okay. We have many eager speakers. So let's start with, so let's start with you. Right. And do introduce yourselves. Black plague. <laughs> However, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> Ask that we can, question. We'll do that Ask lecture that after this no, one's no. over. No, how, however, do you, do you think that uh, that um, uh, things with uh, people didn't see the right flags when Martin Luther thought of the final solution? And do you think ISIS is modeling their tactics on the Nazis? Because before 1948, the Mufti of Jerusalem um, befriended um, Hitler and he wanted to annihilate the Jews in the Middle East. And do you think that Brecht and Weiss and other Jews did, were not, uh, they, they did not belong to a communist party, but they were Marxist, uh, and Marxism started with Hegel. And do you think that the Jews... Another two sentences. No, no, the, Do you think that the Jews started uh, um, attaching themselves to the Mensheviks rather than the Bolsheviks? Okay. okay, so, okay. There's a new Let's, rule. Questions in the form of a question, but one per person. One, one, one per person. Yeah, and you know, person. Would you yeah. like me to do a couple at once and then you can choose? Um, I want to, okay, I'm going to take the black plague question. They're all connected, actually, what I'm So, yeah, let's take, let's take a few, and then I'll pick some let's points. Let's take a few. Professor. Yeah. Jeffrey Hosking, uh, University College London. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes. Um, I find your argument about statelessness very compelling. The uh, upshot seems to be, I mean, statelessness was caused by war, so the upshot seems to be that for us today, the lesson should be to do our utmost to prevent war and preserve states. Have I understood you correctly? One, I've, I've, one, one more, okay. and, then, and then you can answer. And yes, you, and, then, and you next. All right, thank you. Um, I'm a freshman student at King's College London, and I attended a lecture that you gave earlier this year at UCL, uh, during which you warned of Russia's current main policy aim, the erosion of civil institutions in Ukraine. Um, given that your main argument is that the destruction of civil institutions and civil society enables atrocities like the Holocaust, uh, what are the implications of this for the current Ukrainian crisis? Okay, thank you. 
Okay, I should, I should maybe, I should maybe stop there. So the answer to the question of how the Black Plague is related to the Holocaust is this. Um, no, there is, there's an answer. So the Holocaust happens in Eastern Europe because the Jews are in Eastern Europe, and the Jews are in Eastern Europe because in the early modern period, um, there was the, the Jews were blamed for the Black Plague in, in, in Western Europe. It's one of the reasons. And they, they accepted invitations from Polish kings and others to come to Eastern Europe, where they were in general not bl- blamed for the Black Plague. Um, so that's the, that's the relationship between the... So that's the question I'm choosing from this one, the one that you didn't ask. Um, on, on Jews and Mensheviks and Bolsheviks and Marxism, I'm not sure like, where we're meant to go with that. Uh, the, the, the point that I'm trying to... I'm, I wouldn't deny that like, individual Jews are, are, are Marxists, because then I would lose like, many of my friends. But uh, I mean, in the sense that I would make them cease to exist. But, but the... the, the and, and I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to get into um, the question of like the relationship between, say, Karl Marx's assimilation and the emergence of Marxism, or Hegelianism as a quasi-religious doctrine, um, which you know might, which can take on Jewish and less Jewish forms depending on who's interpreting it. I think those are all legitimate discussions, and, and I'm interested in them. But for the purposes of, of, of what I'm trying to argue, where I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move towards an almost social history of all of this, with with the politics being local politics. What's more important is the way that the Jewish question was ethnicized at the time and the way that it's remained ethnicized. So this business of the Jews are communists and the communists are Jews, which is, you know, which is a, Nazi, a Nazi idea, is way too legitimate in current conversations. It was, it's one of these things, and this is a point I should have made, it's one of these things that it's a generalization that when you kill for it, has to be true. And this is an important part of the way that killing happens, I'm convinced, on a local scale. When you kill for something which is false, it then has to be true. Because if it's not true, then why did you, why did you kill, right? And so the debate, like you can see this in the pain over the debate about Yedwabna in Poland, where um, it happened. I mean, in, in that particular case, Poles killed Jews. And then there's a counter argument, which is that, well, we must have done it because the Jews were collaborating. We, th- th- that must is the crucial part. I mean, it, 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 that actually isn't why it happened, but people feel like it has to be true. Because that would make it all that would make it all make sense, and I'm trying to. This is part of the kind of these these accepted generalizations or whatever. I know I'm not answering your question exactly, but that's that's what I'm trying to work against. Religion, um, in my argument, I mean, it comes in. My religion comes in my argument in a couple of ways. Again, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm just going to refer to it. Um, the Judeo-Bolshevik idea arises in revolutionary Russia, and it partly is in a kind of apocalyptic response to all of the chaos of revolution. Um, the whites and their propaganda associate the Jews with the Bolsheviks, with the Antichrist, with the end of the world. And in that way, they do draw in some popular sentiments to their side. And that Judeo-Bolshevik idea, we can actually follow its genealogy in Hitler's thought, because he doesn't have it at the beginning. He gets it right around 1919, when, it, when it's literally brought in. I mean, the, the protocols of the elders of Zion are literally brought in from Russia, and he reads them. And you can see that then become a major, a major theme in his, his writings. Um, another thing which is interesting about religion, which I didn't say, is this. Um, the the the, um, the the record of the mainline Christian churches in the Holocaust is pretty awful, um, pretty awful. The the exceptions, interestingly, tend to be religions that are minorities. And here my approach is a little bit like with ethnicity. It's actually not what church it is. So people look at France and they say, well, the Protestants were nicer than the Catholics. Turns out that's not really the case. What's the case is that religions that are minoritaire tend to be more generous under conditions of oppression, I, for whatever reason, because they're used to being against the state, because they're used to identify with outsiders. But in France and in the Netherlands, what determines whether Christians rescue Jews, or at least correlates with it, 
is not Protestant or Catholic, but it's whether in your local area you are a minority. And you see this in the Soviet Union too, where the people who rescue Jews disproportionately are um, Mennonites, Stundists, Baptists, people who belong to scorned sects, which were actually illegal under the Soviet Union. Those people rescued Jews in very large numbers. And you can tell stories about it that it had to do with religious sympathies, which is true, that they, they were philo-Semitic, which they were sometimes, that they were Zionists, which they were in a funny way. But there's also, I think, it's the sociology. And this helps us to understand Andrei Sheptitsky, who was the only major Catholic figure who actually, he, he rescued more than 100 Jews. He wrote to Himmler to protest the Holocaust. He wrote to Hitler to protest the Holocaust. He wrote to the Pope to ask the Pope to ask. There was no Christian figure of rank who behaved in any comparable way. And then he was, of course, extraordinary. But at the same time, he was the member of an oppressed minority religion. He was a Greek Catholic. And the Greek Catholics in Poland had been, had been repressed for the previous 20 years. So that, there's a sociological story there which I find extremely interesting. War, war and the state, uh, I, I, feel, I feel like you're drawing me into a trap somehow, but the answer, okay. But, the, but, the, but the, yeah, the answer, the answer is yes. I mean, that's, that, the answer is, is yes. That, or, or, you know, if you want to make it slightly more, slightly more sophisticated, if there is going to be a war which involves destroying a state, then one has to have a really good idea of what's going to replace the state afterwards. Right, um, which sometimes which sometimes people do, it's happened. Right, but some but people generally don't. But your story is just absolute priority for preventing war and preserving states. I, I, yeah, no, I, I I would put. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll go along with you. I'm, I'll go along with right. you. I just I just I'm just going to agree. I don't I don't I feel like I feel like I'm going to lose if this keeps going. I just, I'm just going to agree. Um, and then the the what was the last thing? Sorry. Oh yeah, no. So I mean, I, it, it's interesting. Where, where are you? There you are. Um, so I wrote this book before, so anyone who's written a big academic book like, will, will understand this immediately I, wrote the, I had finished this book before the crisis in Ukraine and um, I, I, mean, I, I, just read, I just read a review in New Yorker which was extremely intelligent and I, you know, I wish I could write that well but one of the claims which is made is that, uh, that my views on the Holocaust were influenced by what happened in Ukraine and it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. I had finished this book, I had finished this argument when the crisis in Ukraine began, and it was precisely for that reason that I reacted so much to it, because the claims, which I thought I would never see again in Europe, that state borders aren't legitimate, that some states aren't, don't in fact exist, um, that you can make historical arguments about their existence, that in fact ethnicity and religion can be used as arguments to take territory away, all this stuff which was in the, 19, the late 1930s was then coming back. And for me, it had a very special resonance because I was making an argument that those were the things which actually permitted, the, created the openings for the beginnings of, of the Holocaust. And yes, um, th that's why I made those arguments at the time. That was why that intuition was there. And yes, I worry about Ukraine as a result of it. I worry, Ukraine was not a strong state to start out with. And the continual stress that this war puts on the state is, 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 a, is a very bad thing. It's remarkable, I think, how well Ukrainian civil society all in all has reacted but um, unless, you know, this cannot go on forever like this, something is going to break. And unfortunately, as I see things, this is another topic, but we're in a three-way race to the bottom. We're going to, you know, Ukraine, the EU, or Russia is going to break. It's just a question of which one is going to break first. Interesting. Yes, my reactions to Ukraine were also conditioned by a book I'd written um, about Poland. Yeah. Uh, Hi, Raj Kassman. Um, I want to ask you about the origins of Lebensraum. I'm <coughs> yeah. oh, sorry? Um, the, the origins of Liebesraum. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, you say we're, we're a, a wealthy generation of people who haven't, we haven't had shortages. Um, so are you linking that to the depression which happened in, in Germany? Is there, where does it come from? Because that, 
that needs an explanation as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me add yeah. another. It, another it can't point. just be one idea, one man's idea. Mm -hmm. It is one man's idea, but it must have other resonance okay. and okay. other Brief causes. Questions. Got it. Christian Crawl from the Legatum Institute. Um, I also find your uh, thesis about the destruction of states quite compelling. Could you talk a little bit about Hungary and Romania, mm -hmm. which might be more complicated cases? I'd just like to hear how you, how you yes. see them in terms of that idea. Yep. Okay, let's, let's do one more over here, and then I'll, I'll switch sides. Sorry. Uh, just in categorization, why do you think that the label Jew is such a beacon for all of these murderous urges? Because you're talking about definitions in terms of states, but it seems that all, everything in common is the label Jew, which seems to attract all of these different uh, uh, murderous mm -hmm. actions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Lebensraum. I'm trying to say something, unfortunately, which is a little bit complicated about Lebensraum because I, what I'm not doing is I'm not making this. I'm not making the easy Malthusian argument that there was a kind of objective scarcity which people could easily predict and therefore they were reacting to it. I'm trying to say instead that the Germans were living in a world where they could actually have fed themselves if they had gotten rid of their industry which is just like China today, and you know, more or less, they could feed themselves. It's not that it was impossible. It's that they were facing a choice between being absolutely certain about food supplies or being a modern, industrial, prosperous, exporting power. And naturally, when you have that choice, I mean, unless you're governed by some, you know, by, by like the Cambodian Communist Party, when you have that choice, you will always opt for, let's be prosperous and we'll put our food supplies slightly at risk. What Hitler was doing was saying, we don't have to make this choice. We can maintain our industry and be modern and rich and have our security by conquering land. And that's what Lebensraum is about. It's about being prosperous and being secure. And the price of getting both of those things is starving to death tens of millions of other people. That's his claim. Now, um, those ideas, are, as you quite correctly suggest, do have historical roots, or their resonance does. The Germans were blockaded after the First World War. Right, not during, but also after. I didn't misspeak. They were blockaded until they until they signed the peace accords, um, as a result of which hundreds of thousands of Germans suffered and many many died. The number is still not sure. The Great Depression, of course, meant that people had good reason to be uncertain about world food supplies. Hitler made the argument in a general way that th that, the, that the blockade and the depression show us that only one country has truly reliable access to food, and that's Great Britain. And he says, and here his argument is not entirely, you know. De logique, that only that the reason the British talk so much about free markets and free trade is that when push comes to shove, they're the only ones who can be sure about food. So a free trade situation is a very good one for them and a very bad one for, for, for us. So those are, those are some of the roots of, of the Lebensraum argument. Hungary and Romania, in the part that I'm skimming through in the second part of the book, I give a certain amount of attention to, to each of these cases. And as I, as I want to stress um, in, responsible a bit, in response a bit to the ethnicity question and some other questions, um, there is always a distinct politics. There are always human beings who are making decisions which end up mattering. But at the same time, there is a kind of governing logic having to do with sovereignty. If you look at the end, um, at the outcome, slightly more than half, more than half of the Romanian Jews survive. Um, almost all of the Jews who survive, or almost all the Jews who are in pre-war Romania, 
survive. Almost all the Jews who are killed are the ones who live in territory which Romania lost to the Soviet Union and then which Romania recovered. Interestingly, when Romania goes into the Soviet Union, taking back its own territory, it plays exactly the same Judo-Bolshevik game that the Germans play. And they know it's not true. That's the difference between them and the Germans. The Romanians go into Romanian villages knowing it's not true and saying the Jews were the ones who brought communism to you. And they deliberately don't punish Romanian communists who they know collaborated and instead associate communism with Jews. Um, but the, the general point being that for Jews, the worst thing that can happen to you is a loss of sovereignty, even if it's a temporary one, a shift of borders. So um, if you look at Bulgaria as well, the Bulgarians have this, also have a very nice story about how they didn't send their Jews to die, which is roughly speaking true. They didn't send their Jews to die if they were on the territory of pre-war Romania. However, on all the territories where they, all the territories they gained, they did where there was that moment where everyone was floating free, they did send their Jews to die at Auschwitz, pretty much all of them. Um, so in, in, but in Romania, there's, there's a chronology too. <clears throat> the Romanians start the war with the Germans. Um, they, they behave basically as the Germans do. In 1942, the Germans want them to, to send the Jews under Romanian control to, to German death facilities, and the Romanians say no. Um, and the reason is, the re- there are multiple reasons, but one of them is that the Romanians feel like the Germans shouldn't be telling them what to do. The Romanians feel like, you know, after tens of thousands of deaths around Stalingrad, you know, they have the right to choose the future Europe that they want. Because the Nazis are saying, what the Nazis say to everyone, this is important actually, what the Nazis say to everyone is, if you want your voice in the new Europe, you have to kill, you have to kill Jews now. This is what they're saying to collaborating individuals and groups in Eastern Europe, but also to countries like Romania and Hungary. If you want a voice in New York, you have to kill Jews. And Antonescu thought he'd already done enough, right? But also, Romania as a sovereign country could look out at the world and say, well, we're a German ally now, but there's a future in which we won't be a German ally. We need to hedge our bets a little bit. And somewhat anti-Semitically, the Romanian leaders, like the Hungarian leaders, overestimated how much people in London and Washington actually cared about the Jews, and stopped killing them, right? And actually extended, re-extended their protection. So, such so that a Romanian Jew in a French concentration camp was not going to be sent to Auschwitz. The French would put him in a camp, but the Germans wouldn't kill that Jew because Romania said, no, that's our citizen, right? So the, 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 the Romanians switched course. Hungary, so I already give you one part of the story, which is when Hungary expands, the Jews who are in the new territories are excluded and many of them die as a result. Hungary, like Germany, has a series of increasingly discriminatory laws against Jews, which themselves do not, in fact, lead Jews, lead to the death of Jews. This is one of my arguments in the book, that you can have discriminatory laws about Jews, but that doesn't actually kill them. There's no, there's no inevitable slide. The inevitable slide, if there is one, comes when sovereignty is interfered with. So the, the moment when Hungary does kill most of its Jews is the moment when Germany invades. At which point, and, but I want to say like, oh, nice Hungarians, they got invaded, you know, it's not their fault. Rather, the German invasion skewed the political debate in a certain direction. And by 1944, everyone knew that if you sent the Jews away, you could take their property because that had already happened to millions of Jews. The Hungarian government passed laws anticipating the absence of Jews about property, which everyone in Hungary understood what those, what those laws meant, right? And then Hungarians locally and the Hungarian police collaborate in getting those Jews out of the country and into Auschwitz so they can take all the property legally because the Hungarian government had already passed the relevant laws. So, but that nevertheless is a case of sovereignty being messed with, right? The Germans invade, so you have, it's a kind of mixed case. And then the Hungarians, when they stop killing Jews, they stop killing Jews because Horti, the regent, the head of state, 
has decided that the, the Allies are going to win the war, and he has to send a signal in that direction. So it, has, it all has to do with, with, with sovereignty. Um, why always the Jews? The Jews... The Jews are special from the point of view of a German world, a Nazi worldview, and of German policy. Um, how special they are to other people depends upon who those other people are. It's important to remember that there are no German Holocaust perpetrators who only killed Jews. They all killed other people. And once you know that, it, it then opens, I think, or it can open a little bit one's, one's mind to other kinds of explanations. Because you get out of the circle of they killed because it was a Jew. Right? Because everyone who obeyed orders to kill Jews, also, as far as I know, I mean, I'm waiting for a counterexample, also obeyed orders to kill other people. Um, and this is true of the local collaborators as well, like the Arais um, commando in, in Latvia, which murdered the, the majority of Latvia's Jews. They also murdered yellow Russian civilians, and they also murdered handicapped people, and they also emptied psychiatric hospitals. They did what they were told to do. So um, at the top, I can see it. I mean, at the top, I see the design. I understand the logic. We can follow the policy. We know the policy to kill all Jews was there. But as far as Jews being the total common denominator of killers, um, they, they, they weren't because the, the, total domin- the common denominator of all the killers was that they killed people. And, and I, pre- I prefer to start from there because that allows you to say that the Holocaust was special and that it was the only policy which was meant to kill all Jews. But it also allows you to, to, to accept this reality, which was that the people who killed people killed people in general. Okay, I'm going to be really harsh and just take two more questions because it's already 8 o'clock and I've been cheating this side of the room, so I'll take you right there and I'll take one final one, you. (laughs) So, go. Thank you very much. Uh, My questions focus more on the latter part of the title, namely the warning. Um, We know so much about this dreadful period in history But bearing in mind events like, for example, what happened in Cambodia in the 70s, Srebrenica 20 years ago, and possibly what Islamic State might do if they got more powerful, have we ever learned anything? One more. One final question. It better be good. Uh, My name is Philip Gardner. I'm uh, Shana Tova. Um, my question uh, is about you, you talk about how we've learned sort of maybe uh, the wrong lesson or a different, you very much focus on a, on a different focus in the East. Is it perhaps that we, we focus on the West and the story of a society turning against its Jews, the sort of Western Europe that we're familiar with, because we feel it can teach more to a society that is unlikely to experience statelessness? So it teaches more a helpful lesson of anti racism. Uh, that applies in our mind to Western Europe far more than the the horrors of Poland or Hungary ever could. Okay, that's a that's a smart question, and I'm going to try hard not to agree with the premise, and I'm going to buy I'm going to buy time for that by answering this one first. So I'm I'm not quite sure, but like what, like I'm going to answer your question as an academic. We we have learned some things. Um, the 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 arguments I make about the Holocaust are actually in large measure consistent with a huge body of research done by non-historians. Historians tend to focus on one, one event, what social scientists would call a case. But in the last quarter century or so, um, a whole field in political science and sociology has emerged which deals with ethnic cleansing. Basically since Srebrenica, um, a whole field has emerged which deals with ethnic cleansing and with genocide. And they have, and, and, and they've reached the point where they're not just studies, but you know, studies of studies and studies of studies of studies. And their main finding is that these things, ethnic cleansing and genocide, are possible in conditions of 
border changes, civil war, and state destruction, right? So they're making the argument that I'm making, but in their cases, it's usually inside a state. A state is collapsing or there's some kind of border war. Um, the other finding, and this is less the social scientists and more the historians, is that the only countries, because there are not many cases, the only countries that actually succeed in killing large numbers of their own citizens on their own territory um, without a war are party states. So the People's Republic of China has managed to do this, Cambodia managed to do this, the Soviet Union managed to do this in the 1930s. All of them party states. So none of them conventional states in which the relationship between citizen and state is the final relationship. All of them places where the party actually takes priority. So if you look at the findings of social scientists and the findings of historians, you can put Nazi Germany in the middle, and you can say, well, Nazi Germany was a party state, but not one which managed to kill its own citizens on its own territory in peacetime, but one that managed to create the natural conditions for ethnic cleansing and genocide beyond its own borders. So it's actually a case which I think fits rather beautifully into what at least we as academics no, and I'm trying to make an you know I'm trying to make an argument which actually rests on all those foundations. You may have made your question more rhetorically, but that's that's my best answer. Um, here, I mean, I think you're ascribing. Uh, I mean, Holocaust educators are you know I spend a lot of time with them. They're they're important people in my lives, in my life. But <laughs> um, uh, but I think you might be ascribing to them us a little bit more, um, a little bit more savvy. I think the West European case was what was used because that was what was available. Um, I, I don't, I don't, my, my sense of the Holocaust, liter, even the literature, you know, not just the, the, the museums, but even the literature is that the East European Holocaust hasn't actually been imbibed. You know, so when I write, when I write my books, then, you know, all my colleagues write and say, yes, we know all of this. Okay, like they do, I, I'm sure they do. But I don't think that it's actually changed the narrative. And so I, I, so I don't think that halt people who are, who are um, putting up the exhibits actually have a choice about which story they're going to tell. I think only the one that you're talking about, which is a, it's a valuable story, but only the one you're talking about, about um, stepping aside, not taking responsibility, not doing what everyone else is doing. I think that's the only, been the only one that's available. And I think, it, let, let me try to historicize your question. It might have been just the thing in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But I would suggest that right now, um, the lesson about not destroying other people's states or worry about ecological panic is just as important and maybe even more so, maybe even more timely. So um, that's, that's not the main reason why I, I, I wrote the book, but I think it is right that if you take the Holocaust not in its French version or even its German version, but in its Ukrainian version or its Polish version, it's harder, it's more painful, it's certainly more disputatious. Um, but if you can take it as a realm for causal arguments, then you might end up with lessons that are harder to take, but which may be more important. Thank you very much. like to thank LSE Ideas, which is the piece of the LSE that has supported this lecture and which also hosted both um, Tim Snyder and I as Philippe Ramon professors. And I'd also like to say Tim will be, Professor Snyder, sorry, will be signing his book in the foyer right now. Thank you very much. Okay.
Thanks to all of you.